Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. Um, If you would like to, you, you can open up your Bible. I do feel like we have somewhere to go. Uh, We will do that. Um, You can open up your Bible to John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, we're going to look at what is an iconic verse. Uh, And I say iconic because it's very familiar. It's well known. um, Used in a variety of ways, angles, slants, perspectives. Uh, But we're going to look at John chapter 3 and the life of John the Baptist And where John the Baptist in verse 30 comes down, and he does come down, but he says, he must increase, and I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. I want to just let you know right here in the beginning that I believe God is going to apprehend many of us tonight who maybe in this moment have been running 100 miles an hour in a variety of directions. Maybe we've thought of ourselves as being faithful, being diligent, being responsible, being productive, being resourceful. 100 miles an hour doing things that maybe have aligned with ambitions, with passions, with different dreams, pursuits, objectives that have been formed, uh, that are alive on the inside, according to the journey that we've been on. But I believe that the Lord is going to apprehend many of us tonight, right? Sometimes you do what you do because you haven't been apprehended yet. Sometimes you do what you do because it's all that you've known to do. And you haven't had the encounter yet. You haven't had the moment where God has intervened. You haven't had the moment where the Lord has arrested you by the power of his spirit. And so you're 100 miles an hour in a direction that seems right. Because there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, we know that at times, depending upon our own desires, demands, evaluations, there's a way that can seem very right to a man. But in the end, often, when it's according to the way of that man, it leads to compromise, to destruction, to devastation, at times to death. I believe that the Lord is going to apprehend many of us tonight and align our lives to him as a real person and to his purposes in a greater way than maybe we've known up until this day that we're living in. You see, much like Paul running 100 miles an hour doing his own thing, he's persecuting Christians. He's finding them, pressuring them. He's embarrassing them in horrific ways. He's punishing them in the streets. He's jailing them and even at times standing over their dying bodies as they're being executed because of an agenda that he is the initiator of. Paul recognized his own life pre-conversion or pre the moment when God revealed himself and apprehended him. Paul evaluating his own way of life before God came to him in the unique and in the powerful way that he did said of himself, I know that everyone else thought that in certain ways I was the man. 
that I had built a resume, I had power, I had platform, I had influence, right? He says, according to the law, I was found blameless. He says, but I was the chief of sinners. He says, I was a murderer. Paul recognizes that the grace of God in Galatians chapter one, in God's perfect timing, God chose to apprehend him and to reveal his son in him in such an extraordinary way that it recalibrated Paul's life. It recalibrated Paul's attention. It recalibrated all of Paul's dreams, his ambitions, his desires, his appetites. God did something by way of visiting Paul that absolutely transformed the trajectory of Paul. And in the consideration of the life of Paul, Paul was doing what he was doing because he didn't know anything else. And sometimes we do what we do because we just don't know anything else. Sometimes we do what we do because God hasn't visited us yet in the way that he's desired to, that's going to transform the trajectory of our lives. We do what we do because we haven't had the encounter yet. We do what we do because we haven't had the visitation yet. We do what we do because God hasn't unleashed the visitation or the revelation of his son to us in the way that's actually going to apprehend us and align us to his purposes that he has for us. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I did childish things, right? That's, that's all of us in the room, right? I think of some of the foolish things that God has been long-suffering with even in my own life, across my own journey in trying to walk with the Lord and serve God and be faithful in his purposes. When I look back upon my life 10 years, 15 years, 20 years ago, five years ago even at times, and I consider some of the things that I did, I said, Lord, I was doing those things because I actually didn't know any better, and I was just trying to be faithful in whatever way I knew how. This would have been Paul's consideration. I did what I did because I didn't know, but now I know. Now I know. Right, until you know, you just don't know. But then when you know, now you know. And when you know, it's difficult to unknow the things that you now know. What you can't see, you just can't see. But when you see, it's difficult to unsee. And I believe that the Lord is going to apprehend many of us tonight and align us to himself, and to his purposes. Because God is readying a people that are going to ready the stage for the end of the age and the return of Jesus. He's readying a people. You see, because this is what church is about. Church is about a people. You're actually not going to be able to find Bible verses that are going to authorize or authenticate church as an event. So for whoever of us or how many of us that would try to define the church as an event, um, to, I mean, tonight it's just simply off. It's just wrong. Um, the church is not an event. It's not something that happens. Uh, it's not something that fits a particular time slot on a day and you need to be there or in attendance whenever it happens. 
The church is not a something that happens. The church is something that is. And if I asked you to only give me Bible verses in order to tell me what the church is, you would be hard-pressed to provide verses that provided a definition of the church as some sort of event. You see, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Colossians 1 would tell us that the church is a people that have been rescued from the domain of darkness. They've been rescued from the dominion of the wicked one, and they've been translated or transferred into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. Ephesians 2 would tell us that the church is a people who were dead in their transgressions and sins, that were living under the rule of powers and principalities, that were living self-satisfied, self-indulgent, sin-centered and self-absorbed, and actually were living in enjoyment of it, in their brokenness, in their darkness, in their actual death. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, chose out of his own richness and kindness, his tender loving mercy and grace, chose to make us alive from the dead. Ephesians 2 would say that the church is a people freed from the influence of rulers and powers that are now alive from the dead. It's not an issue of morality or simply of behavior. It's not are you good or bad. It's are you dead or are you alive. Ephesians 2, the church is a people alive from the dead, freed from the influence of rulers and powers. Revelation 5 would tell us that the church is a people that have been purchased with the blood of Jesus. They're a blood-bought family. They're a company that based off of the wisdom of the cross and the power of that precious blood of the Lamb. Oh, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Revelation 5 would tell us that according to that precious blood, that Jesus has purchased a people for God, and he did it by way of his own blood. Exodus 19 would tell us that the church is a people that God desires to have for himself, a people freed from being just like the rest of the nations, to be a peculiar people, to be a holy possession, to be a royal priesthood, to be a kingdom reality planted in the nations of the world. 1 Peter 2, Peter would give us exhortation pertaining to the church. And he would say, remember, beloved, at one time that you were not a people. You were just like everyone else in the world. You were living their way. You were dreaming their dream. You shared their appetites. You were baptized or immersed. You were under the discipleship of the world system and the sway of the wicked one. He says, but God chose you and rescued you in order to make you now not just any people. You're not just anybody that you wanna be. God didn't rescue you so that you could now do you. God didn't rescue you so that now you could just live free or autonomously from God and his purposes and just live wildly or extravagantly according to your own appetites. He says, no, 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 beloved. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. 
And the people that you are is the people of God. He says, now your primary distinction is the people of God. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that any man that is in Christ is now a new creation. And that this reality of this new creation experience that they bear upon their own lives, the responsibility to now be representatives. They are heavenly ambassadors and their lives knit together in God in a shared way of life together under the leadership of God's spirit now makes them or creates them to be a heavenly colony. Jesus prayed for it in John 17 when he was praying for us together as a people. He said, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but the same way that I was sent into the world, I am sending them into the world, but I am sending them to be in it, but not to be of it. Paul exhorted the Corinthians to say, come out and be separate be ye holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. The writer of Hebrews, in helping to provide definition to the people of God and to the reality of the church in chapter 11, would consider us to be together exiles, aliens, and misfits. He says we are those who have tasted something in God. And we have actually willfully, joyfully, radically laid down all of what is the dream of this material world and the appetite of the system of the age. We have put it down because, oh, taste and see, beloved, that the Lord is good. And because of this taste and this vision that has apprehended our lives, we now realize we don't find our bearings any longer in the world. We don't find our placement any longer in the world or its ways. We don't get traction in what the world is dreaming about. We don't find leadership or discipleship according to what 1 John 5, 19 would call the sway of the wicked one, what Ephesians 2 would call the influence of rulers and powers, what Romans 12, 2 would consider to be the pattern of this world. But we are now misfits, we are exiles. We have abandoned the ways of this world because of the way that we have become together anchored in God. Only using Bible verses you would find that the church is a people, the church is a family, and the reality of what God has done in order to produce something that has not ever been until the death, until the crucifixion, until the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the pouring out of God's own life and spirit. The church is a family. The church is not an event. Now that family can host events, all types of events, if it wants to. But even without those events, the church still has a very real identity. The church still has a very real mission. It has a value. It has an objective. And God is pulling people by way of a divine longing into his story, into his narrative. He's pulling people 
What does the psalmist write? As deep calls unto deep. There's a divine longing in our day where God is seeming to disrupt our lives in a holy way. Man, I'm telling you, until you've had your life disrupted in a holy way, where, man, I'm telling you, things that were okay yesterday, they're just not okay today. Things that were seemingly enjoyed, things that could pass, things that used to fly, things that I used to be able to pursue, things I used to be able to give my attention to, things that I used to be able to put my anchor down in and get traction with. I'm telling you, God has done something. He's disrupted me, and now there's a divine discontentment with things that at one time were exciting and pleasing and enjoyable, but yesterday is not today. And God is disrupting by way of a divine discontentment and with a longing, there's a deep that is calling unto deep. And there is a bearing witness of the power of the Spirit in these days to the people of God that there has to be more. There has to be more than just spinning our wheels with worldly enticements and incentives. There has to be more than just the attractional or enthusiastic and entertainment model of what church has become as a event. There has to be more than show up and watch the show, give it an offering, see you next Sunday. There has to be more than 60 minute, 90 minute Christianity that the life of the son of God was given and raised on behalf of. And God is disrupting what has been the status quo. He's disrupting places where we used to be comfortable, places where we used to find contentment, enjoyment. They used to be all right. But now things are not all right the way they used to be all right. But it's because God is apprehending me. God is arresting me in a certain way. He is seizing me, if you would, and getting a hold of my attention. God knows your address. He knows where you live. And when he wants to get your attention, he is fully capable of doing so. <laughs> and the Lord is doing it in our hour because there are a people that by the power of God's grace and the life of his own spirit, are going to help to ready the stage for the end of the age and the return of Jesus. We just read a verse in John chapter 3 from John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an extraordinary figure on the timeline of history. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus' own evaluation and testimony of John in Matthew 11, 11 would bring Jesus to say these words. There is no man that has been born of a woman that is greater than John. According to Jesus, John's life was great. Well, we recognize John as a man in a moment that because of his way of life in God and his faithfulness to the Lord over three plus decades was chosen in a unique moment of history in order to set the stage for the first coming and revealing of the man Jesus. If you're familiar with the life of John the Baptist, you realize in Mark 1 verse 4, it says of John that while John was out in the wilderness, that John had an appearing. 
He became visible. It's not that John became visible because of all of his efforts in order to shine a bright light on himself. John didn't take three decades of devotion to the Lord and try to leverage it towards some ministry opportunity. John was faithful to God because a divine longing pulled him out into a place of hiddenness, brokenness, obscurity, and what we would consider to be a wilderness reality. But John wasn't there because he was some weirdo. John wasn't there because he was cultish or because he didn't have some sort of desire for the other things that people were delighting in. We recognize John of a royal type priestly pedigree. His father is serving in the temple service when Gabriel comes to announce the birth of their son, John. There's only a few men across the timeline of history that Gabriel has come to announce the birth of. Look it up. You'll find a handful of people, and John the Baptist is one of those. And Gabriel announces that John is going to be great and that John is going to be a peculiar yet powerful man. He is going to be a Nazarite of sorts, meaning he's going to be wholly devoted or consecrated to another. And he's not going to consider this way of life to be too much of a request for the Lord. Much like Daniel, when he found out in chapter 6 that they were outlawing his devotion and that now there was going to be the penalty of jail and even death if he, if he continued the depth of his devotion that God called him to. And yet, what does it say of Daniel? It says when he found out that they wrote into law that he could no longer pray, he took it to the house. And he went home, and he climbed up to a higher place. It says he went up into the upper room. And he opened up the window toward Jerusalem, and got down on his knees. And just as he had been accustomed to, three times a day, he kept on praying. Some of us hear three times a day in the place of prayer, and we immediately think to ourselves, oh, yeah, no, that's just too much, bro. No, 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 bro. Like, I got stuff to do. Like, I got a bunch of other stuff going on. Like, man, like, let me tell you, like, three times, bro. Like, let me tell you, one devotional time a day is enough. Praise God. We don't got to be all extra. You ain't got to be all radical. You don't got to be super wild. You just don't got to do all of that type of stuff. Like, one time a day, God knows I love him. He knows that I'm giving it to him. He knows that I want to walk with him and be faithful to him. But he also realizes I got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Daniel didn't see it as too much, and John didn't consider the call to be too much. The reverberation inside of John, based off of a deep calling unto deep and a divine longing that provided an invitation to him to come and live a certain type of way for a long period of time, was John's invitation. Come and be with me, and walk with me the way that I'm asking you to walk with me. Are you willing to do that? And John responded, and he gave his whole life to it. He gave his whole life to it. We recognize John as being six months older than Jesus. If you remember when Mary bursts in to go see Elizabeth because of her own unique visitation that radically transformed the trajectory of her life, she runs in to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth as a witness or as an evidence of God's faithfulness and 
power becomes a reference point to Mary that all things are possible because out of barrenness, God has demonstrated his faithfulness and Elizabeth is six months ahead in the journey of pregnancy than Mary is. And so John is six months older than Jesus. We realize that they would have been contemporaries in their day. And both have unique upbringings. You don't hear anything about John for 30 years. And then all of a sudden, Mark 1.4, he becomes visible. Mark 1.4, he becomes visible to the region. Well, we know that John just wasn't doing his own thing. That he wasn't actually just wasting time or wasting his life but that he was giving his life in an intentional way to the Lord in a particular way of life that by Jesus' evaluation, Jesus gave the testimony about John and said that John was great. Well, if I were you and if you were me, I would want to know what is it about John's life that Jesus thinks is so amazing. And there are things that we can deduce because of the description or because of the help that the scripture gives us about John's life. In John 1, 23, we know that John is a man that is deeply versed or immersed in the word of God. When they ask him who he is, he says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make a straight pathway for the Lord. John sees his own life And his own function, his own value, his own purpose in God in the context of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 40. There will come a voice crying out in the wilderness, make a straight pathway for the Lord. John understood that there was something about his life in God, meaning his way of life in God that was helping to prepare a straight pathway for the revealing of the Son of Man. John was deeply immersed in the Word of God. We realize because of later in Matthew 11, verse 18, again, Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he had a demon. So we know that John was a man of consecration, fasting, devotion, prayer and intercession. Again, John just wasn't out in the middle of nowhere wasting his time. No, 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 no. John was actually redeeming the time. He wasn't wasting it. If anything, he was wasting his life on Jesus. You see, because the world will rally around and they'll mock, they'll laugh, they'll criticize. And they'll consider according to the way of life that it's a waste because it doesn't seem to be beneficial or productive or connect you to the results that are so attractional to the rest of the world. But there John was, immersed in the word of God, fasting and praying. In Luke 11, verse 1, it says that John's disciples come to Jesus. And they say the same way that John taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. We're gaining more insight into the life of John. John lived in community. He lived with a group of disciples. He gave himself in the place of covenant loyalty to the Lord and also to a people. You see, because we have to understand 
that God doesn't call individuals to be individuals. God saves people to make them a part of a people. And most of us don't live with a corporate identification. We don't live with a sense in our own hearts that comes under the leadership of God to realize that graduation in the spiritual life is not amputation from the body. Most of us are looking for graduation by way of amputation. And there's an epidemic in church culture where we actually believe that if we can just get popular enough, that if we can just get famous enough, if we can just start an organization, get a little logo, and get enough partners to finance our agenda, that we get an exemption from the biblical prescription. And the biblical prescription is that, yes, Jesus comes to seek and to save that one that was lost, but he comes to make that one a part of the collective whole. He saves people to make them a part of a people. Well, man, you just don't understand. I've been wounded by people. Join the club. You don't understand what has happened to me because of church folks. Jesus would say, church folks crucified me. Let's talk about it. And he gave his life in order to reconcile them, raise them from the dead, and better them. Who is this king of glory? And John is out in the wilderness giving himself to a group of people in a faithful way for a very long time. Three decades worth. And again, not leveraging it towards some sort of unique ministry moment. Not using three decades of devotion in order to try and push across his own agenda or his own desires. But John is giving his life to the Lord. And in a faithful way for a long time, John's way of life in God is what created a pathway or made straight the way for the revealing of the first coming of the man Jesus. Now, now maybe you don't understand how difficult what we're describing actually is to pull off. 30 years of faithfulness without any idea that there's a moment or a time or a season in front of you by way of an extraordinary reward for all of what has been your effort and your devotion. Most of us are too immediately conditioned to go 30 years without getting something back for it. I promise it, it'll go a little bit better if, if, if you just kind of help me out a little bit. I, I don't need the help, but what I'm saying is just for, the, just for the experience of the whole. Like just, we're in this together, right? Most of us are so immediately conditioned that the idea of investing 30 years into something without being able to taste of something that we have desired to get out of it immediately brings us to the place where we would check out. But John is not in it for self-exaltation. John is not in it because of a self-absorption, knowing that his moment is coming. 
knowing that if he can leverage 30 years, oh, okay, let's put it this way. Most of us don't even probably understand the window of time that John had in the place of visibility. Most create the timeline to recognize that John spent six to 18 months in visibility. Six to 18 months out in the region preaching before he was taken in by Herod and then, then he rebuked the leaders, right? He prophesied God's judgment upon those in authority, which is what extended his prison stay, right? So, so John wasn't living in self-preservation. He wasn't living in self-exaltation. John had six to 18 months, 18 months max, six months they, they create the timeline or the awareness, but 18 months max, six to 18 months 30 years to get six to 18 months, and then he spent two years in prison and then had his head cut off. Now, now for any business-minded folks in the room, you realize that 30 years of investment to get an ROI of six months is not a great transactional like accomplishment. Like, like that's not a great deal. But John wasn't in it for self-exaltation. And, and, and it is, in some ways, one of the most difficult things to, as Jay considered, deconstruct in the life of a human, period, but then a human that becomes a believer. I often think of Richard Wormbrandt, and who Scott would know, and who came and preached a message and in his opening of the message, he was talking about the consideration of American culture. And he said, why is it that in the English language, the only letter that demands to be capitalized when it stands alone is the letter I? He said, there's just something inherent within us that wants to be exalted. There's just something inherent within us that wants to be adored. It wants to be noticed. It wants recognition. It wants visibility of sorts. If you think of Moses journeying with the people of God in Deuteronomy 32, God propositions him when Moses is up on the mount and it says that the people of God who were freshly rescued, by the way, out of Egypt in the great exodus with more extraordinary signs and wonders than probably any other generation or company of people have been able to witness. Freshly rescued, Moses goes up to the top of the mount for 40 days. They get weary waiting for him. They elect a new leader. Hey, we're tired of waiting on that guy. We don't really even know where he's at when he's coming back. You know what? We're gonna find us a leader for ourselves. We're gonna choose somebody new. We'll get somebody fresh in the seat. We'll get somebody that's gonna help us do what we wanna do. And they rally around Aaron. They make him leader. They begin to prostitute themselves. There's a wild party that's going on. They create a golden calf. They call it Yahweh. And they begin to worship this calf for bringing it out of Egypt. And God is up on the top of the mount, visible, if you remember Exodus 19, God comes down. He's visible. 
on the top of the mount. They're not doing this in some shadow type of reality. They're doing it out in the open with God visible on the top of the mount. And God says to Moses, you know what? Forget them. I'm tired of them. Oh, rebellious, stiff-necked, just hard-hearted, like, sorry rebels. Like, like, you know what, Moses? This is what we'll do. We're going to burn them up. You know what? Just, we're going to, like, here I am, and there they are. And they're going to treat me this way. We're going to burn them up. And in Deuteronomy 32.10, this is what God says to Moses. And I will make you great. And I will make out of you a great nation and people. He says, we'll just start this whole thing over. And Moses, I'll use you. And I will make you great. And what does Moses say in response in Deuteronomy 32? Moses says to the Lord, I know you better than that. I know you better than that. That's not the way you do things. And there's a covenant reality that's at work right now. And you've covenanted yourself to a people. And your faithfulness and your power and the demonstration of your own goodness in an ongoing way is connected to a corporate identification. And I know that I have an opportunity to compromise the way that I'm connected to them in order to make my own story great. I know that I have an opportunity that's being presented to me to disconnect from a difficult people. Because if you've ever gone all in with a people, you realize that it's not absent of difficulty. Right? But even in the midst of the difficulties, Moses recognized an interdependent and interconnected reality. That the greatness of his own story was connected to the greatness of God's story by way of a corporate reality or a corporate identification. Moses said, even when you called me all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, you made it plain to me that the reason you were called calling me and were going to use me was because you were thinking about them and that you wanted to bring my story into their story to make it your story to where you could be glorified in a company or a corporate reality and you just don't identify with the individuality of my own ambition or dreams or story and that's not to destroy uniqueness but that's just to recalibrate our understanding that to say even in the midst of opportunities to disconnect from a corporate identification that the greatness of our own ambition is interdependent and interconnected into a family that God has covenanted us to. That there is no isolation, amputation that God is going to bless but that there is a revelation of God himself reserved to the people of God. As Jay exhorted us on Friday, you can't have everything that there is to know or to have about God all by yourself. He exhorted us, burning happens in community. Last night we were exhorted that there are particular aspects 
of a way of life together as community and in community that are important to the Lord. Unity, generosity, and irresistible hospitality. And Moses, in the consideration of having what seems to be a great opportunity, says, I can't compromise the way that I'm connected to them. Because I realize that my story is not just intertwined, but it's interdependent. You see, if it were intertwined, it could potentially be something that's transactional so long as we've qualified it's beneficial. And there's just too much disgusting stuff in the reality of relationships in kingdom life that is built on transactional realities. There's too much that is purely just transactional. Well, I've determined that there's a good enough benefit here, and so I'm going to try to buddy up next to you because you can help me get to where I want to go because you can help me connect to who it is that I really want to connect to. And we evaluate folks according to our own desires, and we look at people, and we prefer certain people according to the appetites within us that prefer certain types of benefits or objectives. And Moses is not looking at the people of God, thinking to himself, they're the way that I get what I really want. But he's considering to himself, they're the way that God is going to get what he really wants. And if I'm going to give God what it is that God really wants, then my life has to be planted with them the way that God really wants. But how quickly we look at opportunities to compromise our connectedness. And based off of appetites that have yet to be crucified, we enter into compromise because we determine that certain opportunities are more advantageous or beneficial to the journey that we think we're on. It's like, no, 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 bro. I ain't got time for hanging out with folks and coming to the prayer room and sharing meals and all of that other type. No, 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 bro. I got stuff to do. I got to work overtime because I need this money. Because you've determined that the money is more beneficial to you. You've determined that the money is more consequential to your journey than actually giving God a corporate reality by way of you not being willing to identify with God in a standalone way, but to identify with God from within the framework of the people of God. Most of us are not living with the jealousy, and this is not critical, it's just reality. Most of us are not living with the jealousy that Moses had in this interaction with God. To say, I'm going to forsake the opportunity for my own individual greatness in order to be more deeply anchored into the reality of the people of God. In order for me to realize an interconnectedness and an interdependence upon my story being anchored or immersed in their story because there are things about God's power, about his goodness, about his faithfulness that I'm never going to be able to experience the way that God desires for me unless I take the me and make it a part of an us. And Moses said, I know you better than that. I know you better than that. If I compromise the way that I'm a part of them, then I'm going to end up missing out because not every opportunity is actually an opportunity to advance. Some opportunities are presented to us to test what's really going on within us.
And Moses says, I know you better than that. Moses was a man that was confronted with self-exaltation and chose a deeper immersion into God's story by not just bearing witness. This wasn't some distant association. Right, hear me, it wasn't some distant association. Moses wasn't like, oh yeah, that's my people. Is it now? That's your people. If someone followed you around for a couple of months, would they be able to determine that you're a part of a people? That you're a part of a people that have a shared way of life? Or would they conclude that you from time to time attend church events? Would they conclude that you're a part of a people, that you actually believe within your own heart, that your own vision of your own purpose, your own bearings, your life in God is actually not just better, but that it's actually interdependent upon being anchored in the reality of the people of God together as a covenant family. And that that covenant family has a shared way of life that God is not just interested in for those that are extroverts, but he is absolutely committed to, just like he was committed to John's invitation to a way of life that created a pathway or made a straight way so that he could reveal his son the way that he desired to. And we have to not just be convinced Right, as if like I've provided more details in a debate, and so you just realize that you might not have enough ammunition to win the argument. We just don't have to be convinced. There has to be something from within us that goes from convincing to convicting. Where I'm no longer, you're no longer like having to wrestle with me, debate me, argue with me, prove to me, pursue me, chase me, right? Like those are my people, right? Those are your people. Yeah, I go every two, three months. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, but that's my church though. No, 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 no. The reality of church as the people of God requires a more hefty involvement than that. And it's because God is after something and he deserves something. And the way of life together in God is actually conditioning the people of God and setting the stage so that the people of God are prepared to interact with what will be the consideration of the end of the age and the return of Jesus. And John was committed to it for a long time. For three plus decades. And at the end of his tenure, He says, I must decrease because he must increase. After 30 years of faithfulness and the chastisement or the criticism of those that rallied around him, who said to him, hey man, your ministry is shrinking. People are no longer coming to the meetings. Like they found this Jesus guy up on the other side of the river to be way more dynamic than you, bro. Like, like have you ever heard him speak? Like, bro, people are flocking to his meetings. Like, we had a good thing going on. John, we need you to fix this, bro. Like, you have to do something. And John says, a few verses prior to John 3.30, a man can only receive what's given him from heaven. He says, but I actually realized what my whole life has been about. He says, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And I find my joy in hearing his voice. And I find my delight 
in knowing that I'm giving him what it is that he asked me for? Are you giving him what he's asking for? We got to ask the question last night, will we be the church? Are you giving him what he's asking for? And at the conclusion of this interaction, John says, I must decrease so that he can increase. How many of us think of ourselves that way? But I believe it's because John understood something that some just possibly don't. John understood that God asked him to prepare the stage, not to share the stage with Jesus. He asked him to prepare the stage, not to share the stage. John understood that his whole point was to ready the times, that his whole value, his whole function, his whole life objective was to make a straight pathway so that Jesus could be unveiled or revealed the way that God desired. And it wasn't necessarily just because John had the right ingredients for a way of life. You see, we were exhorted earlier out of Exodus 33. Moses says, unless you go with us, there is nothing about us that is going to create a contrast or that will create a distinction from the other peoples of the earth. There has to be something of a divine infusion upon us together as the people of God that makes us peculiar. There has to be something of a spirit empowerment, a divine element of sorts that creates a difference and makes a distinction. Acts 2.42, they gave themselves daily. First off, they. They gave themselves. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father. It's not me, 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 mine, 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 I, I, I. When you pray, pray this way, our. Acts 2, spirit poured out. They daily committed themselves to a way of life together in God that created the, the container or the wineskin, if you would, for God to radically and powerfully pour himself out the way that he desired. You see, John was a man that lived in a moment. But John is not just a person. John is also a prototype. And we have to understand that it is John as a prototype that gives us a witness or provides to us a description of a way of life in God that helped to ready the times and set the stage for the revealing of Jesus. Because when we see John this way, then we also understand that it is going to be not just a person as John was a prototype, but John is now going to give way to a people. And there's going to be a people that carry the responsibility to be a voice in the wilderness, come out and be separate, come out and be holy, be in the world, but not of the world. There is a people that are going to bear the responsibility to carry together a way of life in God that is going to condition the people for the return of Jesus and set the stage towards the end of the age. And daily, they were committed to a way of life together. There was a certain teaching that shaped their way of life. 
Paul told the Corinthians, you have all types of influencers, but you don't have many fathers. He's like, I fathered you, right? It's dangerous just to give way to every type of teaching that's out there. It's dangerous just to align your heart with every type of influence that's coming off of whatever popular influencer may be out there. And even more damaging than that, we've given influence to people in God's house that aren't even necessarily planted in God's house. We give voice to people in the church that aren't even necessarily a part of a church. Where'd you come from? Where are you planted? Where are you faithful? Who has a vantage point or proximity to your life that can qualify, that can credential, that can actually reveal an authorization that you are at least who the rest of a social world and beyond might think you are? We have to stop giving influence to people in God's house that aren't actually rooted in God's house. And this isn't some religious, well, who's your covering? Like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like denominationalism and political realities and all of these abusive considerations of leverage and power which are birthed out of insecurities. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about accountability in God's house where the biblical prescription is the biblical prescription. That those of us that get born again, our next step is to get planted in a people. That's the next step. It's not like, oh, well, when I'm ready to, I'm going to find a church. No, no. Your next step after a born-again experience is to get planted in a people. 3,000 come in. They get baptized. They get planted. And now daily, they are together sharing a way of life. And it all started with a particular type of teaching. They had a particular type of teaching that inspired them and defined them. It aligned them to God and to God's purposes for them. They met corporately and they met house to house. They had commonality and generosity. They shared their interests, their resources, their finances. They were hospitable to one another. They spent time together in the place of worship and prayer. Acts 13, one and two would tell us that they spent time together in fasting and ministering to the Lord. They spent time in missional objectives. Their way of life in God was something that they shared in a communal type experience that helped to provide the vehicle, the container, the wineskin for an unprecedented outpouring of a radical move of God's spirit. And at times, we want a radical move of God's spirit. We just want him to do it in 90 minutes on Sunday. It's like, what, I really want you to move? Man, I want it to be epic. I want it to be extraordinary. I want you to do things we've never seen you do. But you've got from 1030 to 12. I've got lunch reservations. And I'm telling you what, baby, I'm not missing those plans. And if you don't do it this week, We'll show up again and hope you do it again next week. We want God to move, but we don't want to provide the container or the wineskin. We don't want to align our lives to the biblical prescription, which is a way of life together in God with a variety of ingredients that are all equally necessary in order to produce What is the vehicle or the mechanism for God to pour himself out in an unusual or unprecedented way? 
even in the consideration of unity as we were exhorted last night. Matthew 18 says, if two or three would touch and agree and come into unity this way, you can ask me for anything and it will be granted for you. Well, the verses that precede that deal with our relational issues and divisions and problems and woes, right? If your brother sins against you, go to him one-on-one. And if he's unwilling to reconcile, then take two or three people and go and see him again and try to make things right. Oh, well, he's still not gonna reconcile? Tell the church. (laughs) We would probably deal with a lot less nonsense Right now, there are people telling the church, and it's just pure nonsense, and it's, and it's absolutely a circus. But I'm saying, if we actually followed pattern in Matthew 18, right? Oh, he's still going to be unrepentant and irreconcilable? Cool. Tell the church. But why do we have these verses before, but if I could get two or three of you to actually come into agreement and unity and live in harmony in a way where your context doesn't contradict what you're contending for? One more time. If I can get even a handful of people to live in such a way where your context doesn't contradict what you're contending for, then you can ask me for anything. You can ask me for whatever you want. And it'll be my joy to answer those prayers. It'll be my delight to produce or to make provision for those requests. Right? But we don't see it this way. The necessity of a community or a family coming into alignment with God and each other and giving themselves wholeheartedly in allegiance to Jesus to live in covenant loyalty to the Lord and in covenant loyalty to one another, we don't see it as a necessary requirement in order for God to pour himself out the way that he desires. But John would give us evidence or would bear witness to us that there's something about John's way of life that Jesus's evaluation said there has not been a man born of a woman that has been greater than John. And if you want to be greater than John, then you have to get in John's way and go lower than John did. You see, because unless God adds some extra to my ordinary, then we have nothing. Unless God himself puts some fire on my faithfulness, then all I have is a hope of discipline alone. In Moses' encounter that transformed his life in Exodus 3, Moses was given a glimpse of what it is that God desires. Moses saw in the burning bush what it is that God is ultimately after. The reality of the burning bush was that there was fire within something that was incredibly normal, overlooked, and ordinary. But God took what was ordinary and put a little extra on it. 
and it caught Moses' attention because of how spectacular it became when God put something extra on what was just ordinary. And Moses got a vision of what God is ultimately after, and that is God longs to have embodiment. God is looking for embodiment. We know that because God himself became a man. And Colossians 1 says it pleased God to put the fullness of who and what he is into Christ. And Moses caught a vision of God's divine longing. A vision of embodiment. Where God would be able to produce a burning. A longing. Where God would be able to produce an awakening where God would be able to have his way in a person and in a people where he puts an extra on their ordinary and they come alive and they begin to burn from the inside out because of the reality that God is alive on the inside and our lives are aligned to the Lord, not just in some um, elementary or abstract way, but this is reality and it's greater reality at times than we want to acknowledge that we've been given the power of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit at work in you is longing to be able to apprehend you and to baptize you, to immerse you into the reality of God's desires where your whole life would be reoriented or you could say it this way, where you would become kingdomized in a sense and be broken from all of the comforts and the entertainments of what has just been satisfied by cultural Christianity. And where we would, like Moses did, respond to the invitation of burning, respond out of a barren, hidden place to give our lives to the Lord and to join God in his story and to desire that God would put a little extra on my ordinary in order to create the distinction and to help provide the framework for God to release what it is that he desires in our midst. They gave themselves to a way of life. And what does it say in Acts 2? It says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. They gave God the context and God used their way of life together in order to accomplish his desires. It's time to align our lives to God's biblical prescription of a way of life together in God. Hear me, the I is not more important than the us. The I is not more important than the us. And no man is greater than God's value system. Well, you just don't understand who I am. I don't really care. <laughs> like, your story is not more important than the story of the people of God. Your ministry is not more important than God's desires for his bride. We're in a season where God is exalting the bride above the brands. We're in a season where God is establishing families and he's dealing with franchises. We're in a season where the Lord is raising up fathers and mothers 
and he is confronting ministry CEOs. <laughs> God is looking for a people that will give their lives in a wholehearted way to being and becoming the people of God and recognizing that in our being the people of God, God absolutely has to touch us with fire in order to make us different, in order to make our way of life different, in order to create the visibility. It is going to be required of the Lord, and he's up for the charge to put something extra on what others just consider to be the ordinary. At the end of John's life, two years in prison, longer than his public touring ministry, two years in prison, at the end of that, before he loses his head, his disciples come and see him one last time. And he says, go and ask him. Go and ask him if he's actually the one that we've been waiting for. Now hear me, John is not confused about who Jesus is. Too much has happened in John's life in order to testify to him that Jesus is who he says he is. John is not living in confusion. John is looking for confirmation. Go and ask him if he's the one. I have to know. Because John understands that there's only one voice that can determine whether or not the way he wasted his life was actually worth it. Hear me. There's one voice that gets to determine whether or not how you're wasting your life, because you are wasting it one way or another, how you're wasting your life is actually worth it or not. He says, go and ask him. And John's disciples find Jesus. And they say, John sent us to you because we have to know. And Jesus says, go back and tell John this. The blind see, the deaf hear. The lame are being healed. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, recognize that this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. And this is my mission. So Jesus is revealing, again, seeing his life in the context, Isaiah 61, much like John, recognizing Isaiah, understanding the framework of his own life in Isaiah 40. He says, go and tell him these things. But only he doesn't end with what Isaiah 61 ends with, which is and setting the captives free. Rather, he trades that out. And he ends with, and blessed is he who doesn't take offense because of me or because of what I'm doing. And they go back and they tell John. And John has everything that he needs in order to lose his life in God the way that he already had been for three plus decades. John has the confirmation over the investment of his life that he needed in order to qualify in his own heart that he saw me. He knew exactly where I was. And his smile over the ongoing place of my obedience and faithfulness to him is what I lived for. And while the rest of the world might have told me that I lost opportunities, 
while they might have criticized me because of my way of life, while they might have mocked me, laughed at me, hurled their insults, and told me I was a failure, there's one voice that gets to define me. There's one voice that gets to qualify at the end of my life, whether it was all worth it. And I have that voice. And just like he said earlier in John 3, I find my joy in being a friend of the bridegroom. And I know his voice and I stand near to him. And this has been the delight of my life. I want to ask you tonight, will you waste your life the way that John wasted his? To go all in, in being the people of God and giving God a way of life together where he can pour himself out on a people in a powerful and unprecedented way. Where he can condition us in order to be the ones that help to set the stage for the second coming and the return of Jesus. Will we answer the cry of a divine longing in order to go all in, in God's story with the story of the people of God, to find our immersion and to find our value and to find our trajectory, the forsaking, if you would, at times, the call and the cost of our own individual desires to be exalted beyond what is the consideration of a company or a people, but where we find our joy in anchoring our lives in God's people and giving our life to a way of life and asking the Lord in an ongoing way to set us together on fire that God would be able to be embodied in the reality of his people upon the earth. This is what the Lord is after. God longs to be embodied in the people that are his. He longs to put the fire in the ordinary bush. And this is what I believe the Lord is going to invite us into. He's going to touch our ordinary with fire. And he is going to put the flame upon what is barren, on what is hidden, on what is seemingly buried in obscurity. God is going to touch our faithfulness with fire. And he's going to bring us into the awareness of his smile over the place of our obedience, where in an ongoing way for decades and even for the rest of our life, if we must and should he tarry, we would be the ones that hasten the day of his coming because we know him and we know what he wants and we want him to have what he wants, but more importantly, we want him to have it in us and from us. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones,